we don't need a story where the universe of Star Wars connects to our own and, uh, you know, Darth Vader meets a Barack Obama. We don't need it. <laughs> it's just, it's too jarring. Welcome to episode 34 of the Movie Bite Podcast. This is a weekly show where we discuss, praise, lament, or lampoon movies, TV shows, culture, and more. Today is Wednesday, March 6th, 2013. I'm your host, TJ, and we are climbing up the beanstalk today with our co-host, Joe Darnell. Hey, well, hoy. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Mm, pretty good. Pretty good. I'm ready to talk about some movie jazz. Are you now? I'm feeling a lot better now that I don't feel like a train wreck. Seeing as how I got in a car accident a couple of days ago. Yeah, it's crazy. So, are you okay? Tell us about it. <sighs> you what know, what it was, was the experience was like, Joe? Um, it was my first time. Uh, wow. Ooh. I'm no longer a accident car accident virgin anymore. Welcome so. to the party. <sighs> Dude, headaches, back pain, Ooh, whiplash. You had, you had, had far worse than I ever did. I've, I've never actually had any pain from an accident. I got tapped. Which totaled the bumper of my car, but nothing like your experience. Oh, of course, yeah. No, actually, our hatchback was crushed. Um, the bumper, rear bumper, was crushed. I Ugh. was, my vehicle was knocked sixty feet straight ahead, launched by the Mercedes sedan that hit me. Uh, but I was just trying to pull into the work parking lot, and wow, when she hit me. But yeah, so the chiropractor, she's taking good care of me, and I think with a few more visits, I'll be put all back together again. But Oh, it's no fun, man. The adrenaline rush and just people worrying sick about you. And that's actually the the most disconcerting thing is people telling you, oh, this is what you got to do. You have got to go and get like 60 MRIs and the pain isn't going to kick in for at least another week and a half. So you just brace yourself until then, you know. Oh, my. Uh, It's like, yikes. Oh, well, I'm sorry, man. I, I felt like I was the star in my own terrible thriller movie and not, my not, villain was a very uh disappointing middle-aged woman <laughs> <laughs> not quite the same as it is in the movies huh yeah no there oh, was hey. no music there was no fanfare there was no credits that ruled at the end well let me cheer you up a little bit shall, shall we do that yeah let's do that let's talk about man of steel this should cheer you up only Absolutely. the, reason, the reason the reason we're talking about man of steel may not cheer you up though uh, I linked to this back on Thursday, February the 28th, and uh, for me, it was really just about how the article was talking about how it was action-packed and, you know, it was a good film uh-huh. or whatever, but but one of the mm. bullet points in here really kind of, yeah, I didn't say anything about it in the article, but you mentioned it in the comments, and I kind of agree. Yeah. It's this whole CGI'd cape thing, because as you say, the cape is CG'd most of the time so it can look awesome, so capes can't look cool if they aren't in CG. Yeah, I was really disappointed by that press release um, for that reason. It just sounds like, okay, I'm sorry, but are you kidding me? Are you saying that like the cape is a character unto itself? Yeah, that is weird, Uh, right? It was. I mean, okay, what's next? Uh, uh, Do they need to add some special gadgets to Superman's utility belt? You know, (laughs) uh, just to say, wow, this is this time around. We got something new. We've got he he pulls out his own block of kryptonite and it doesn't hurt him. It hurts Lex Luthor. You know, <laughs> it's just like how how far do we need to you know sensationalize yeah. something really you know subservient to the rest of the story? And now we got personalized capes. You know, it's it's a little weird. I I don't know, but you know, it's the first thing that I've really heard about this film that really gave me pause, though. You, you know what they should have said? They should have said that they 
did motion tracking to the actor and did later that they they took a cape and they shook it around with the motion tracking of the actor's body performance and then they add cg'd on the performance of a cape using motion tracking well <laughs> <laughs> that would have been interesting totally pointless but <laughs> very interesting yeah i yeah that's really all i had to say about that is that that just sounds a little weird well, thankfully, on the upside, they said that this film is a bit like a Christopher Nolan film with the oomph of a Zack Snyder film, and uh, I sure hope so. I, I hope that, I mean, TJ, could it possibly be that we'll get, like, the movie of Superman of our dreams? I mean, I, wow, I mean, hopes are high. I mean, I already had that with, uh, you know, Superman Returns, but you, you didn't, so I'll, I'll let well, you know how did you feel? how did you feel about the original Donner Superman movie? Okay, I like that one. Okay, like really one, like it or a like it like it? I mean, uh, what? I, I I don't know. I it's been a while since I visited that film. I'm I'm guessing I would probably maybe give it four-ish stars, maybe three okay. and a half, probably four. I mean, so it wasn't like a five-star film or even a four and a half-star film, but it was a fine film, right? Mm. Second second one's more like a three-star film and then, you know, Superman 3 and 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 4 are both like one and a half-star films. Ah. Uh. Yeah, the way I feel, the first Donner, the the real Donner movie, really, is the only one. It's the first one. It's by far my favorite in terms of direction. In terms of the visual oh. appeal, I think that, you know, what's his name? Brian Singers is the best. Yeah, well, the acting I, I think Brian Singers there, is overall second best. Like, I still like the first one the best. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, hmm. I just felt like the, uh, the Fortress of Solitude was a little bit of a disappointment with Brian Singers' version. Yeah, it wasn't in the film much. Uh, yeah. Just a very elaborate set, but it was too dark, and it didn't do anything for me. Okay, well, I mean, to each his own. All but, right. You know, Zack Snyder is promising us the world, so... Yeah, well, I mean, it's deliver. definitely a complete reimagining, and as I've said, I think, I think, frankly, probably the only disappointment I'll really have with the film is the lack of Superman theme from uh, John Williams. So, that, that, yeah, that will probably annoy, that, annoy me. That is sad. So, you, you know, we can only hope that somebody on the internets will come out with their own like recut version of the film with all John Williams soundtrack inserted <laughs> to replace the well, score can, from Snyder. I'm just talking mostly about the main theme. I, hey, I really wish you, that would come back. What do you think is the likelihood that we will get a Hans Zimmer to do a soundtrack for this? It just seems very high because Christopher well, Nolan has a relationship with Hans. Yeah, but I mean, uh, do we not know who's doing it already? I don't know, but okay, do you? I'm looking it up. Can uh, well, let's see. Okay, hey, 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 I have a trick. I have this. I have this keyboard shortcut command here. I'm going to use it. There you go. It, we already know. In fact, I was going to say I think we already knew that it is Hans Zimmer. Are you serious? Yeah, IMDb lists it as Hans Zimmer. <sighs> I'm, I'm putting it in the show notes. Han does everything. I know. I Yeah. Well, I'm, I I call him Han for short. Um, <laughs> yeah, I figure we can't get away from Han. He does he does everything these days. Good guy. I, I love him, but I, I just feel like, you know, he's kind of like a you know, chocolate ice cream over overkill. You know, we get chocolate ice cream every time we go to the movies. I don't feel if that way at all. If it's really I'm great, happy, it's always I'm, chocolate ice cream. I'm happy to have chocolate ice cream. <laughs> mm. All right, uh, so I'm I put that in guy. the show notes. The show notes for this episode are at moviebyte.com slash MB podcast slash thirty four. Next, right. we have the Time Warner Cable story. They report that there's no consumer interest in gigabit internet. 
And for those of you who are uninitiated, that just means faster internet. I don't. There's not very much gigabit internet in the world for regular consumers. And mm. what what Time Warner Cable is saying here, uh, as I wrote in the article that I or in the linked list item that I posted, I were la 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 fingers and ears, not listening. <laughs> faster is stupid. La 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 la. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> and it's just so the opposite of the way any company serving customers should be thinking, right? They should be thinking, how can we... How can we make it better? How can we delight our customers? And they're saying, yeah, can, there's no yes. demand for it. We're going to we're gonna drag our feet and wait till you know, we're going to we're gonna wait to give them faster internet until there's demand for it. Unlike, you know, you and I, we've talked about this before, you and I are big mm-hmm. Apple fans, and what Apple did with the iPhone, there wasn't a demand for the iPhone, but they made the iPhone, and guess what? Customers loved it. Hey, there was a demand for podcasts. And heck, Apple made podcasts, and then look where we are today. Yes, well, we're we're this is the way this show exists is as a podcast. I know. So it's I pretty know. cool. But the, and the if point, anything, you know, well, no, go ahead, TJ. The point here, I think, is is really um, a, a couple of things. Uh, the main thing is that what they're doing by saying this is is stifling innovation. I think, and you know, they they have every right to do whatever they want with their business. I I, I certainly come from a libertarian standpoint on that. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that we should like regulate that they provide faster internet. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying they're just not a very forward thinking company. It's holding back innovation, and you know, because faster internet enables. Uh, better technologies to exist. Like, if the internet hadn't gotten faster and if companies hadn't pushed the internet to get faster and technology hadn't moved ahead, we would not be able to broadcast this podcast live like we are right now so that people could listen as we record it. Because without fast internet, that would not be possible. Mm. Now, 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 let's just explain something really quick, though. Gigabit Ethernet, in our case, to, uh, as movie you, you know, watchers... Gigabit you know, Internet, you mean? What did I say? Ethernet. Oh, uh, okay. There's a standard. There's a thing called giving the Ethernet. Gigabit Ethernet. <laughs> uh, so I can understand your confusion. Continue. Right. Or well, the thing about gigabit internet is that it's all about speed. And if we had this sort of speed, gigabit speed, then we would be getting all of our video content like what? 10 times faster than what we get it now. Right. Well, when I talk what? about innovation, you know? I'm talking about even like Netflix could stream you their, I don't know if Gigabit's fast enough for their 4K or whatever, their 2K. I can't remember which standard they're pushing, but even higher quality content. Right. So everything could be HD without question, you know, 1080p stuff. And with the possibility that we could even get beyond that, maybe but, to 3D technologies or sophisticated menus and bonus materials. But Time Warner Cable doesn't believe that it's in the best interest of their customers right now. <clears throat> it's not in the best interest it's, of their. I love customers. how they frame that too. It's like this is this is in the interest oh. of our customers. Right, right, right. Uh, we're, ser- we're serving our customers. Okay. Wow. I mm. just wanted to mention how irritating that is to me. That's just mm. so frustrating. I, you know, and especially especially for me as uh, you know a, a completely different field of work. Obviously, I'm not providing an internet service to people, but with Movie Byte. I'm always trying to figure out how can I make this better for the consumer? How can it be better? And they're like, we're just going to stick with the status quo and whatever we can get away with. That's good enough. Mm. I don't know. It just yeah. really irritates me. So Yes. All right. Like ready? reruns of Seinfeld. I, anyway. I'm, this is going to degenerate into bashing, so we need to move on. <laughs> mm. Okay. Wow. So. Now, I, and I understand your frustration. So another little interesting uh, piece of video happenings in the world. This week, we got a special little treat in an advertisement for chocolate. Audrey Hepburn was seen eating chocolate in a commercial. Thing is, though, she's been dead for a long time. And she looks pretty young here, too. 
Yeah. Like, how's this what, possible? Yeah, and actually, uh, I heard, and I've already forgot the this little scene in the advertisement was based on a particular movie and a particular scene in that movie. Do you remember what that was? No. Okay, let's just say, though, it's one of her, like, star performances, one of her more blockbuster successful films, right? You know, one of her more renowned ones. And so in this, she's on a bus, traveling, presumably across Paris. And I, something, I would the, the say countryside. So. I don't know. Maybe. And uh, she's got, you know, like her little purse. And in her purse, we see a big old hunk and chunk of chocolate. And she impulsively decides to hop out of the bus, run over to the guy's a convertible next to hers, her bus in the uh, street, join him for a joyride. And uh, all along, right? Audrey Hepburn's performance in this thing is CG. Is that right? That's correct. There is no live action wow. part of, of Audrey Hepburn here at all. It's not a Man. lookalike. It's not. I, you know, I wish I could have seen this commercial, not knowing that she was CG, to see if I would have picked it up. Because I certainly can pick it up. You can pick it up that it is that she is CG. Yeah, but not very. Not not like you would think. And it's I wonder not how they, easy. Yeah, yeah. There, like, there's just I, subtle things. Well, you know, I showed it to about four other friends. Yeah, I think it was four. My wife, this guy who works in a print shop, and then one of my siblings, and and all of them saw it on pretty good monitors, but my sister saw it on a TV. And of the four, only two of them thought that something was really off, and I hadn't told them that it was CG. The other two just watched it in amazement, like, holy cow, what did they do? How did they pull that off? And one of the two that wondered about it was saying, well, maybe they just like took real film footage and then somehow they inserted the scene scenes where they show the chocolate, you know? Yeah. And that's what they would have done if this commercial were made 10 years ago. But uh, well, they probably wouldn't have made this commercial 10 years ago, but yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, because she's actually there and interacting with people and, and, you know, I, I think that actually, unfortunately, the 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 most telling part is right when you first see her and the unnatural head movement isn't um, it though it, it, you know what's funny too is that they probably were doing some motion tracking here like they did with tron legacy with clue and the actress's performance can be uh captured with her, her motion tracking in all things but one you know what that is they cannot track the actress's eye movements, but mm. surely they have some reference footage. So it really irks me that of all things, it's the eye gate that the, uh, the audience is paying attention to most. Like, you know, they got the, every hair on her head, just perfect, but nobody needs to pay attention to the animation of her hair, right? We're paying attention to the eye gate. And it seems like the eyes were the most telling that there was like, a different sort of motion speed to her eyes that they were too, they glide when they move. That doesn't seem human. It doesn't seem humanly characteristic. Yes. I noticed that, but also just even in the, like the, the, the neck to head movement and, and how she looks. Yeah. There's just a little bit of, uh, there's no, no other subtle. way to put it. There's a video gaminess to it, like like a, a character from Portal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and there's all those video game trailers out these days, and that's kind of what it feels like, only so, it's but, but, just but, Audrey Hepburn. But in another part, and I wonder if like that was animated earlier and they were getting better and they didn't have time to go back and do it better, because she's walking in another part, and that seems completely real. It did. 
So and, and then when they show her taking the bite of the chocolate, I, they actually only show like half of her face when she's actually eating the chocolate. Right, so I, I think that was a real person, like real I, lips. I wonder too. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That was probably the body double. Because there you was think? yeah, there was a body double that they wound up not using hardly at all. And I wonder though if they used her for that because that was a close up <laughs> on the mouth, and and it just looked so real. I, I just don't think the CG technology is quite there yet to yeah. really give you the illusion. It's of getting realness. close. It's getting very close. I, I'm, I'm giving it. I'm, I'm calling it like five or six years, and we'll be able to. You won't be able to know. Yeah. Now we had a couple of commenters on the post. Archie Bunker said that he doesn't see any problem, as indicated. She is dead, and I'm certain she would have no problem with her heirs profiling her in this image. And I'm like, ah, I don't eh, know about that. Right. He, he's talking about something I mentioned in my article. Uh, yeah, okay. where I, I had three responses. All of them were, wow. First one was, <laughs> wow, you can hardly yeah. tell she's CGI. The second response was, wow, you can tell she's CGI. And the third <laughs> one was, wow, this is crass. The woman is dead. Let her rest in peace and stop commercializing her in her death. And so he's responding to me oh. saying that. It, it, it's, it's, it's creepy, really. I mean, it we're recreating a, a dead person. Yeah. Let her rest in peace. You know what they're going to end up doing a few years from now? Just watch it. They'll have probably, uh, what's the guy? Uh, dude, uh, he was the, uh, oh, I'm forgetting all the actors' names now. But they'll just have somebody like, uh, pick a name. Pick some older actor. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Okay, yeah, sure. Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, they'll ahead. have Tommy Lee Jones in a movie in a few years that's like trailing the story of some character's lifetime. So they'll have a, a 20-year-old version of this guy you know, set many years ago, and he'll be CG. It'll be Tommy Lee Jones, just the way he looked when he was in his 20s, but it'll be CG. And then they'll have, you know, in the course of the story, a few years go by and show him at 35, and then show him at 49, and show him at 53, and then, you know, and they'll just keep on doing this until near the end of the film on his deathbed, it'll be the real Tommy Lee Jones, and that'll be the only real moment you see his face. Uh, That's where it's going to go, man. And, you know, I think they'll do something like that with an actor that is still alive for a full-length feature film before they do something with a dead person like Audrey Hepburn because they don't have her authentic voice. Well, they that, cannot reproduce the voice. Right. I can't remember if it was you or somebody else was mentioning the next big hurdle is replicating somebody's voice. And you notice in this thing – man, we're talking this to death, but it's so fascinating. Um, it is. You, it's going to revolutionize movies, you man. You notice in this commercial you do not hear her speak. And that's because, you know, Audrey Hepburn has a recognizable voice, and if it's not her voice, then you're going to know it's wrong. It's messed up. Right. And there have been a few other commercials like this that were a little less ambitious, but tried to do the same thing. They were, you know, selling, you know, fashion uh, items or perfume, and so they would show Grace Kelly and Marilyn Monroe, but they and then they would insert them into a new scene, and they'd use a little CG to try and sell it. Yeah, but uh, those weren't not those were not nearly as good as this one, people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all interesting stuff, um, dude. We gotta further this conversation sometime. I think we should just practically talk about uh, the future of visual effects for the foreseeable future. I'd love to have an episode about that because things like this are. Just slightly ahead of the curve, but they are so coming to a theater okay. near us. In- inside baseball here, but I have a friend who does complete 3D graphic uh, stuff, like like video. Like uh, I don't know if he models people, but he does CGI sets. Like I did a video with him. I'd love to get him oh. on the podcast to talk about that. 
Ooh. So yeah. we, I, I did all the green screen. Like we, we shot a, we shot this actress on green screen and then he did the whole set and, I, and, and he put her in the set. I, I keyed out the green screen and he put her in the set. It's, it's incredible. I'd love wow. to get him on the podcast to talk about it. Huh. So let's uh, inside baseball. We're planning our next podcast here, people. Um, so <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's see if we can get him. Can, can we call that new podcast inside baseball? <laughs> yeah. That, that, that episode you mean? Oh yeah. Well, at least that episode. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, we have uh, a couple more things to talk about here before we get up to Jack the Giant Slayer. Uh, you know what? Uh, let's yeah. Let's talk about you this pick just and for choose. A Game of Thrones director shrugs off piracy. The reason I was uh, hem and ha- hemming and hawing is we probably have some crossover with uh, another podcast I do called In the Queue, and I did talk about it on there just now. Just finished recording that before this episode with oh, Alex Arena. Cool. I'll, well, then tell us what you talked about. Uh, well, we just we just mentioned this. Uh, Game of Thrones director shrugs off piracy at the Perth Writers Festival this past weekend. Game of Thrones director David Petruk, I don't know how to say his last well, name. Okay, is he this director down- like the main director of the entire? I, I guess series? I didn't dig into it that far because I don't know much about okay. Game of Thrones because I can't watch it, which is the point I'm going to get to here. Uh, uh, he da- this director dude who ha- is associated with Game of Thrones, he downplayed the threat of piracy to the show's success, saying that illegal downloads don't matter since the shows thrive on cultural buzz. Now, okay, uh-huh. I get what he's saying here. But do you know that Game of Thrones is the most pirated TV show? Now, why do you imagine, Joseph, that that is? Ah, shoot. Dude, maybe it's because, um, uh, wow, maybe it's only on TV and uh, you can't get it any other way? You can only get it if you are a subscriber to HBO. So not even not even if you have a cable subscription, but you have to have a separate subscription to HBO to get this. Mm-hmm. And it's not made available on Hulu Ever. Or Netflix. Not available on Netflix. It is only available. You can purchase it from iTunes a year after it's aired. You can purchase the season app a year after the last season aired. Then they will put make that season available on iTunes. I'm not going to pay 50 whatever dollars it is to watch this silly TV show when I pay 10 bucks a month to Netflix and 10 bucks a month, 10 bucks a month to Hulu. Not going to happen. So I'm well, not, wait, I would wait, love to watch Game, Game of Thrones. Well, well, TJ, don't uh, hold your horses. Just uh, back up here one step. It's very true that for a very long time it, it has been very difficult to get a hold of the Game of Thrones, and and uh, so you're right on most of what you just say. But let me clarify: uh, seasons one and two are now available on Netflix. But okay. yes, it, for the longest oh, oh, time they were they're available on Netflix. That's yes. new. Yes, it is very new. Uh, you can get them as Blu-rays and DVDs. Seasons one and two, three is not available. And it's just, yeah, it was an oddity that it just took so long for it to get there. And yes, you're right. This has been a longstanding issue where consumers have been begging to get their hands on these shows after they aired on HBO, and they just were not making them available, people. Why? When all of this is digital content, and it could be so readily made available for Amazon's instant play stuff and for iTunes at least, and if they wanted to have some sort of special release for the series, then I could understand them holding off. But you know what? They didn't. They didn't produce anything especially unique about the delayed release so what gives? Well, what gives here is I think these people, as we've talked about before, as as we beat the dead horse and we go on and we go on, uh, um, it, it, 
they are stuck in the old model and they're dragging their feet. We're, we're dragging them, kicking and screaming. We have mm-hmm. the, we have this revolutionary technology called the internet that has revolutionized the music mm. business so and the the it's future. trying to revel, the way of the future. Yes. Way of the future. Uh, they're trying <laughs> to revolutionize. You and I both listen to five by five podcasts, don't we? <laughs> um, yes. so, um, we're trying to revolutionize the video industry now and, Things go okay. It, it, it's kind of like this is how the market works. Things go where they're most comfortable. They 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 we're converging on a point here. The the consumers they want their content a certain way. The the uh, content creators have had a lot more control of how that content is delivered up until now. But what I don't get is they're dragging their feet in the old model because they know how to make money with the old model. But there's an opportunity here for them to make so much more money. But they're dragging their feet. Mm. It's so frustrating to watch this happen. So yes. anyway, that's just a little bit of a tirade on Game of Thrones. I understand what he's saying, and I get it. I'm glad that he understands piracy. You know what? Pirates, they're gonna pirate, right? Uh, they're people who really are pirates. They're gonna pirate Game of Thrones. That's just the way it is. And you're not gonna stop as long as we have an internet, and as long as these shows are available digitally in any way, people are gonna pirate it. Uh, you mm. can't stop them, but you know what? What bug? So I, I'm glad he un- acknowledges that. Be- oh, okay, so let me back up because what these stupid content creators tend to do is they tend to say every single instance of piracy is a lost sale, which is ludicrous. People pirate just because they can, and they're not going to go buy it if it's not available to pirate, right? So that's ludicrous yeah. to say. But there are, in this case, there are lots of people pirating who would rather pay, but they can't. Or that they can't when they want. I'm not. I'm not excusing piracy. That's dumb to excuse piracy. I, I. I. don't excuse piracy. I think it's wrong. You shouldn't do it. But the content creators are not being smart. Mm. So that's that's all. Just a little. Uh, just a little frustration there. And uh, that's that's all I have to say. Well, I mean, uh, uh, thankfully, on you know, look on the bright side, TJ. Uh, yeah, um, well, I, I'm sorry. I can't figure out what the bright side is. <laughs> All right, should we talk about one more thing before we get to Jack Reacher? Yes, please. Jack sure, Re- why Jack not? Reacher. We got a little what, extra time. Not Jack Reacher. What am I saying? Uh, <sighs> Jack the Giant Slayer, the writer, well, also wrote Jack Reacher. So Really, though, that was some sort of like, it's not a Freudian <laughs> slip, it's some kind of slip. That's it was really some what kind you're of trying slip. to say. It was, it's reaching for something. It doesn't update. Okay, go on. The Hobbit crosses one billion. Oh, Wow. Yeah, it's really that's big. Um, what was the the last film to cross a billion? I believe was the Avengers. I I don't quote me on that. I could Mm. be wrong, but I believe that's correct. I wouldn't be surprised. So, The Hobbit: An Unexpected Journey has officially surpassed the billion dollar milestone at the worldwide box office. To date, the blockbuster has earned three hundred and one point four million domestically. Pretty good stuff. And then the rest of it is, uh, well, not mainly do. Let me clarify. In in recent days, it was released in China where it has grown, uh, grossed, sorry, not grown, 37.3 million in 10 days. 37.3 million in 10 days. It's pretty good for China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so in a staggering estimated 700 million internationally. Yeah, so I mean that's good. I mean I liked it well enough, and I'm glad it's doing well. And you know Peter Jackson yeah. put in a good effort. So uh, there's you know I had my issues with the film, but yeah, it's it's but- it, you know we, we've talked about this before, but it's so true, TJ. This movie isn't even the best of the Lord of the Ring trilogy or, or the foreseeable Hobbit films. I should hope. So yeah, now, do you know how how this film is done? In I don't have that. This, I'm trying to look it up, but do you know how it's done in comparison with Lord of the Rings films? 
No, not on this sort of timetable where it's only been out for X number of months. Yeah, and that uh, information is going to be hard for me to find off the the top of my head here. I wonder how much... Lord of the Rings stuff on Box Office Mojo right now. Okay, Return of the King has uh, made 1,119,929,000 over its lifetime. So it crossed 1 billion, but that's over its lifetime. Um, yeah, wow. I don't, I don't know how I don't know how that would compare, you know, and I can't I can't pull up readily the information of you know this many weeks out compared to the Return of the King being out for what since two thousand three December seventeenth two thousand three, right? Um, well, and I wonder too just how much three uh, D throws this off. Is that is that figured in to what it grosses? Oh yeah, because you know there's all these three D showings, there's all these IMAX showings. Oh yeah, and every, every so single much- showing factors in here on Box Office Mojo. Right, and so the price of a a ticket, though, varies wildly. Oh, sure. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And it wasn't quite so much just a few years ago with Return of the King and the other two, because those films were not available in uh, 3D, right? No, not to my knowledge. See, this is kind of what bothers me about these statistics. You always mm. you always got to chew them on with a grain of salt, and it doesn't seem like the statistics ever come at you with that fact factored in you know things like inflation you know these things are always happening and then you know this uh very quick to the public statistic just makes it sound like omg this is the biggest thing since sliced bread and sure Joss well Whedon. and this is not accounting for inflation either so but, but it is notable it's still a huge chunk of change yeah and all the more power to them i i hold it i hold i don't hold it back from them you know unexpected journey it was pretty fun it's one of the best one of the best of 2012 yeah. One of them. All right. Well, we have another si- uh, an item of interest, as I've renamed this segment, but it is related, and it basically is our main topic. So let's talk about that real quick. Um, okay. <coughs> Jack the Giant Slayer had a dismal opening weekend. Mm. Uh, it, it, it Earning only $28 million opening on 3,525 screens. Huh. This is better than it was tracking on Friday, likely due to the fact that families waited until the weekend to see the film. Still, it's nowhere near what the movie needed to take on its opening weekend, take in on its opening weekend, and will likely not be enough to clo- to even come close to making up for its almost $200 million budget. I, we talked about this last week. I was disappointed to learn just how much money they spent on this film, and even though I enjoyed the film and, and loved the film, I am still disappointed that they spent this much money. That th- This film didn't deserve $200 million. Uh, it didn't look like it got needed two hundred million, and it did not. It has not performed like it needed two hundred million, and I don't see why they needed to spend two hundred. Much as I like Brian Singer as a filmmaker, why? What? Where did he spend two hundred million dollars on this thing at? Hmm, that's so, a very good question. Now you were mentioning the other day that there was some reshoots involved. Do you know anything about that? Did I say what that? The specifics I don't, were? I don't remember saying that. Okay, I think it was in a quote, maybe then in one of the posts, but. Uh, I read somewhere. I don't remember any. I don't remember this. I'm seeing this information anywhere. This is new to uh, me. Okay. Well, I heard that it got super expensive when they went back to do some reshoots. I don't know the details on those reshoots because after all, I'm not too concerned about the filmmaking about a film until I take a super interest in it. Right. After I've seen it and I adore it, then I check out it, you know, who made it and did what, but with a film like this, you know, I haven't gone to that extent after all, it's what the beginning of March. I mean, come on people. Anyway. So the thing is, yes, it got expensive with some reshoots and that's all we know, but <laughs> weird, right? Yeah. That doesn't happen very often. And yes, you're right. The, what it has grossed has been rather dismal. Um, 
even hmm. I, I and I hope you would say based on my conversations with you, even not even deservedly so. Like even though you don't like it as much as I do, which we'll get into in a minute, you you feel like probably I would have guessed you would feel like it should have made more than that. I think it should have made more because people don't know how to respect this film. They don't understand that this is actually a film worth probably seeing in theaters if you're going to see it at all. And it was a Brian Singer film, which is saying a lot because this is the guy who brought to the world X-Men. And, you know, it's really awesome visual effects. This is Weta Digital, New Line Cinema uh, doing what they do best. And so, yeah, I just don't see why you would hesitate. Look at the cast. I mean, Stanley Tucci for one reason. Oh, um, man, yeah. You know, uh, what was his name? Billy Bong. Uh, Bill Nighy. Yeah, B- Bill Nighy. He's well, in it, Billy too. Bong, what? <laughs> um, the, you know, some other, he had a B name, that you know. Uh, who else? Nicholas Holt, who, you know, he's an up and rising young guy. Yeah, he's coming up. I mean, he was in X-Men First Class. He was in uh, Warm Bodies. <laughs> um, you know, but yeah, I mean, he's not an unknown. Uh, and then you've, of course, got Ewan McGregor, who, frankly... I don't want to get into this too much yet, but he, frankly, he kind of stole the show, which is not a bad thing. I just, you know. <laughs> yeah, don't hold a, it against him. Yeah, he was a big presence in the film. Now, uh, Ian McShane also, who is one of my favored male actors of the re- of the past decade. Okay, I, w- I wouldn't. Great get, to see him. He wouldn't get that status from me, but I don't, I mean, I think he's a fine actor. Well, we'll get to the details a little bit later. Yes, he's one of my favorite actors, but we'll get to the what I actually think of his performance later. Okay. What, now, do you, Joe, this is usually your department. What do you have to tell us about this film before we really get into it? Well, there's not much to say about the filmmaking on this movie, to be odd, uh, honest here. I just, uh, you know what? Um, let's skim over the details here. Development of the film began in 2005. Um, oh, that long the, ago? I, I didn't know yeah, that. Right, yeah. And it was actually not based solely on, say, Jack and the Beanstalk. There was a, another, I guess, another treatment of the Jack story which is called jack the giant killer so jack the giant giant slayer is based on two different um uh fantasies one called jack the giant killer and the other one jack and the beanstalk i did actually know that this uh was previously titled jack the giant killer and it was retitled to jack the giant slayer Mm. okay and then some dj caruso had been hired to direct the film back in january 2009 then uh caruso was replaced by singer in september in 2009 uh you know just you know ho-hum details to be honest there was nothing extraordinary about the production besides its enormous production uh you know costs yeah yeah crazy shoot well and you know brian singer is probably bringing a pretty penny these days too though so Mm. maybe his director's fee was pretty high too but still i just don't know where they spent 195 million on this film at Yes, well, uh, I do. It, it, practically everything you see in this movie, except for all the human cast, was CG. I mean, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if some places. of their horses were CG. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, uh, it's doubtful that the sky was real. I mean, I don't was, know about that. There was so much CG people, it's just mind-boggling. And it, it, like there was these enormous shots... Um, I'm not complaining because no, I think it was really well done CG. Right, regardless of what else you think about this film, you, you you completely forget that even the giants are CG. Really, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean it's it's I mean obviously as CG is these days, it's still somewhat noticeable, but not. It is like, slightly 
Yeah, it's slightly inferior to human acting when you see some big old lug who has, you know, funny looking, um, you know, <laughs> you know, just like his hair is made of broomsticks and he, he's, he, he's just a weird looking dude. And then he, he grunts and says, kill the humans, you know, it, yeah, it, it, there's only so much you can do to make that look real. But they did it all in this movie to, to sell it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, we haven't mentioned actually what it's. Did we? Do we mention what its total is so far? The domestic box office is at thirty million. The total worldwide is forty four. So we're mm. we're way 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 below the mark here. <sighs> do you think it can catch up? No, do you I don't think, think so? It can. There's no way. It, yeah, me it will be interesting though. I'm not. The, the thing is, I don't think this is going to happen. It will be interesting to see if this this weekend does better. Maybe people went and saw it, and it was better than they were expecting, and now they go tell their friends, and maybe it'll do, have a good weekend this weekend. Yeah, but, but when you come out of the gates this slowly on a film, uh, it's it's not likely. And 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 for some reason, this film is really garnering a lot of negative attention, which I don't get. I really don't get. I, I can see where people might have problems with some things. I I have already uh, read through some spoiler alert stuff in the show outline uh, of yours, Joe, and and I can see where people have some problems. But even you aren't panning the movie completely. No, like a lot of people are. I I don't get what's going on. There's some sort of angst somewhere that's driving this that I I can't find. I can't find the source of it. Well, hmm. We I don't know. Uh, We'll get into that more with our likes and dislikes. But on the note about the general acclaim, Rotten Tomatoes says it's enthusiastically acted and reasonably fun. But Jack and the Giant Slayer is also overwhelmed with digital effects and a bland, impersonal story. And to that I say, did these whoever wrote this, did they see the same film that I did? Yeah. What exactly, though, is remarkably different to you? The, the, the idea that it's an impersonal story or that the digital effects overwhelm it? Both. Okay. Because, see, I don't think the digital effects overwhelm it, but I will say it, it feels like an impersonal story. I, I don't agree. I don't agree at all. Mm. I, I, don't, I didn't feel like it's an impersonal story. This film does a noble job to try and show and tell. And then I don't feel like at the end, I felt like we were getting the movie sort of secondhand. It's kind of hard to explain. Yeah. Just, uh, it feels like the movie was talking to itself and not connecting with the audience. Mm. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, let's cut it. Let's cut to the chase a little bit more about the story. Um, do you want to elaborate on a summary of the story? Cause it seems to me, this is fairly straightforward. The main difference with this plot and say traditional versions of Jack and the Beanstalk is how, is how Jack winds up with some of the King's men up in the giant world. And they together, uh, track down the princess to rescue her. Jack returns with that princess while the king's men try to thwart the bad guy. And then, uh, you know, all in all, Jack becomes the hero uh, by saving the princess and eventually saving the city uh, down below. And there's this huge battle between the giants and the human race in the, in the uh, near proximity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that's kind of added on, right? The traditional story of Jack and the Beanstalk is that there was just one giant trying to come down. Jack chops the uh, the uh, the stalk, and so the giant falls to his death. In this film, there is a giant that falls to his death, but not in the same manner. And all these giants actually cause an epic battle to the death, and 
it just has a completely different way of ending with this elaborate battle. That is the main difference. But other than that, I was pleasantly surprised by the consistency with the traditional story. And that's something that's important to me with fairy tales. You know, uh, do you watch the TV show Once Upon a Time? No, it's it's something some <sighs> people have told me I need to watch, but I, I have so many okay. other shows I'm trying to keep up with. Okay, well, he- here's the thing, people, is that Once Upon a Time has done a great job to try and make fairy tales connect to modern audiences, and I appreciate that notion. I don't think it's important, but I think it's an interesting quality. I like the traditional stories, though, the way they were originally told. So what's the point in trying to reset these characters in modern times? I don't, I don't really like it. It's like... We don't need a story where the universe of Star Wars connects to our own and, uh, you know, Darth Vader meets a Barack Obama. We don't need it. It's just, it's too jarring. And I don't need to see Snow White meet a stockbroker, you know? I, I don't need something like that. Yeah. So I'm very pleased by films like Tangled uh, that, you know, they try to regard the source material fairly well. And yes, they have to make all kinds of enhan- enhancements. But in the end, you feel like they complemented the original story rather than beating it down and changing it dramatically like they do with Once Upon a Time. And you don't like Once Upon a Time because it's consistent with a fairy tra- tale uh, canon. You appreciate it for what it is as its own little monster story of a you know m- m- genre mix mash. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, does about Jack what the Giant you're saying? Well, about, or about Jack, Jack the Giant Slayer? Yeah. Does Jack the Giant Slayer do that for you? Did it feel like it was like the way that Jack had always needed to be told? Yeah, absolutely. I've never been interested in Jack and the Beanstalk before. I've I've watched a few iterations here and there, and uh, I never cared for it. But this film, I really did like a lot. And i I put in my I put in the, my uh, likes in the category of my likes in the show outline that it was original. And you said you're joking, right? Uh, in in a comment, but um, no, I I think it's original. Not not that the whole story is original, but that it's an original take, kind of a refreshing take on the story. <laughs> uh, I, yes. I think it makes the story interesting. Yes. Now there, you know, once upon a time, Disney classic animation stuff with Mickey Mouse, Goofy, and Donald and the guys, they did a version of Jack and the Beanstalk years and years ago, ages ago. I guess it must have been what the forties. Uh, I'm not sure, but anyway, in that one, it was very comical. I think it was one of the greatest moments with Mickey, Donald, and Goofy for a cartoon and uh, great family entertainment. I people, kind of if remember that. Down. I don't. Yeah, know. I, I have very kind of distant memories of it. I may have well, seen it. Well, the when I was odd a kid. thing is, is that they've produced like several different versions of it where they had different narrators, and some of them truncate the story. Others mm. they they do it as it was originally produced, and the way it was originally produced, it incorporated the ventriloquist uh, that. That had the the uh, ventriloquist dummy Charlie McCarthy, Edgar Bergen, I think was his name. And you're, you're Edgar, all kinds of names here, I know nothing about. Okay, we'll look him up. You know, we'll have to. Well, yeah, we'll look at. We'll put him in the show notes. But this was actually one of the best. Ah, you're things. committing me to show notes. I don't even know how to look. Up here. <laughs> Hang on, okay. quick, quick, make make notes of the names you mentioned if you want them in the show notes because okay. you're going to have to give me the links. Okay, I'll, I have a tab open already. It'll remind me. I'll get it to you as soon as we're done recording. Okay, good. So Edgar Bergen was this fabulous radio co- comedian who had um, ventriloquist dummies, and one of them was exceptionally popular back in the 40s and 30s i think it was 
His name was Charlie McCarthy. So they did this elaborate little ditty where live action mixed with cartoons and Edgar Bergen was celebrating Charlie McCarthy's birthday and Jiminy Cricket shows up and witnesses as Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen start to tell these little kids the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. It was a very elaborate, fun little video. I don't even know if it was produced for film. It may have been produced for TV. Maybe I'm all screwed up. Anyway, uh, it was, yeah, maybe the accident's really messing with my head. Maybe this movie didn't exist at all. But uh, yes, it's pretty entertaining. And uh, the fu- the thing is, is that before Jack and the Giant Slayer, that was really the best representation I'm aware of of the story. Uh, it's just one of those, you know, fairy tales that has been oft overlooked. And I don't know why, but, you know, Singer felt like he should do something about it. It's... Mm-hmm. You know, so th- I'm just glad again, going back to square one people that this film, it doesn't feel like it's ridiculously modernized and it doesn't feel like it's completely disconnected from the original story. Yeah, no, that is a huge highlight to me for this story, for this film. Yeah. Uh, other notes that I made in the likes column is that uh, it was entertaining and that it had great dialogue and witty writing. And this, this to me, uh, I don't mean witty like on the Joss Whedon level because nobody can be witty like him in the writing. But it was very Brian Singery in that in every way that I liked about X Men and X Two, uh, that was all present here in this film. I I really did appreciate uh, just you know, and this even ties in. This is a later uh, like in the column as I was coming up with a list of things that I liked about the film. But the editing of the film, I think it it, it goes right along with that same sort of witty dialogue. The editing, it very uh, what we sometimes in the business call sassy cuts, you know, inter- <laughs> intercutting back and forth. I mean, telling the same story, but intercutting with different people. Uh, oh, it's so hard to explain, but it, it, it's a technique that isn't utilized as much as it even should be, I don't think, in, in modern editing. But where, you know, just even like a good illustration is the very beginning of the film where the same story is being read to both the princess and Jack by different people. But we're cutting back and forth hearing this story. It it really is effective uh, uh, way to tell a story. And you get that all throughout the film, the very witty dialogue, the very witty and sassy cutting uh, and editing. And, and, And as an editor, you know, as an editor, I pay attention to the editing. Right. And so, yeah, I loved it. I loved it a lot. Now, now I, you know, I don't want to, st- you know, ruin it for you, people. I, I agree with DJ that the, what dialogue there is, it's okay, and the but the editing is f- stupendous. I, I don't think the dialogue was extraordinary as all this. I mean, like if I had to try and compare it to something for folks, it might be the difference between uh, Pirates of the Caribbean's first film and its second film. How both of them were exceptional, but then the third film, the dialogue just kind of sunk down a bit. And there's a lot of dialogue in that film, but it's just not living up to the other two. Right. Uh, sure. This film feels slightly inferior to all of the pirate films. Oh, no, but it's no, still no, no, pretty no, no, high. I'm no, just no, not going to no. get... No, TJ, I'm not going to give it to you because uh, people like, for instance, Stanley Tucci, a brilliant actor. I love him. And his lines are all very straightforward and Oh, no, frankly, but see, I, I thought that his lines were all great. I mean, his he, lines were my, my trouble with Tucci is that he didn't have enough screen time. But that's yes. a dislike we'll get to later. I didn't have yes. any problem with the... I thought, it was, I, thought, I thought he was very funny. I think that what uh, the, all the actors had, they did pretty good with. Uh, I, I think that they they uh, they definitely soaked it for all it was worth. But the, but the for instance, one of the shortcomings is that the, the this story's meat hangs on the spine 
of the love interest story between Jack and Princess Isabel. And pretty much all of their dialogue and interaction was very much, um, it was straightforward. It was simple. It, I, will, it just, I will give you that, which well, I guess we're getting into dislikes. But yes, the love story was a little bit plain, vanilla, straightforward. Yeah, yeah. I, I will give and, you that. And, and therefore, when there was dialogue between Jack and the King or uh, somebody else, it always felt like the lines were as simplistic as, So, young man, you like my daughter. Yes, I do, sir. But that line and then was somehow not, that they executed line it better. Was never in the movie. Yeah, it, that's true. It, that was that, that but, line wasn't just just so you don't give the people a bad impression here. Goodness, Joe, yeah. that that line was not in the movie. But, but you, you I, couldn't I, see I my facial expression. That the king's uh, line sometimes were a bit simplistic. Um, I, I appreciated actually uh, Ian McShane, uh, Ian McShane's king character in some ways. In other ways, I felt that he was a little underused and a little. Um, uh, shoved aside shall we say mm. so yeah. but yeah well, we'll get we'll get more in depth to this like i was just trying to contrast my opinion of the dialogue no, it's, it's hard to do is, it's hard to do straight yeah. likes and then straight dislikes that's fine um, uh, yeah it's just that you want to call it great dialogue and i'll give you that the dialogue was more than okay but i wouldn't call it great so okay uh you know Okay. I I think you're cool, TJ. I think you're pretty close. (laughs) Okay. We're not too far off on that. Uh, I I have one whole line here that just says, in all caps, Stanley Tucci. And I really really first became aware of Stanley in The Hunger Games, not that long ago. I I think I've seen him in other things, but I wasn't really, like, aware of him. I really, like, and he really stood out in The Hunger Games. Wow, this 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 is a great actor right here. And mm. and there is no difference now in this role, even though it's a completely different role, even though he's villainous in this role where he's not in the Hunger Games. Uh, he's well, neither villain just, nor, nor yes. good guy in, in the Hunger Games. But he here, anytime he's on screen, his his presence is just so Oh, what what's the help me, Joseph? What's the word I'm looking for here? Spot on. Yes. But that doesn't do it justice. No, I, I yeah, love more Stanley than that. Tucci. You just you just don't find any flaw with his his face, his performance, or what he brings to a movie. He always supports it so well. He doesn't seem to compete for screen time with other performers. He doesn't seem to take away from other performers in any way. And I guess I'm just thinking, like, what was the name of that German guy in uh, Django? You know, the guy that oh, was the Oh, Christoph doctor. Waltz. Christoph Waltz. Same way. That both of them just are fabulous character actors. Fantastic, yeah. And whether they're being the good guy, the bad guy, the sympathetic guy, you know, whatever, they're 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 just wonderful. They're two peas in a pod. Could you see a movie with those two together? It'd oh, be man. like thunder <laughs> and lightning, like we've never seen them before together. It's just true, yeah. So Stanley Tucci, though, I totally agree with you. In fact, if anything about his performance as Roderick, this is actually his. His most thankless role that I have ever seen, and oh, yet yeah. he still he, does it so well. You know, so, I, I feel like yeah. the part was written, and then they're like, "Who shall we cast?" Oh, Stanley Tucci, he'd be great. But then they never reworked the script because you, you once you cast Stanley Tucci, you should rework the script to let him be in the movie more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because wow, he really was great when he was on screen. But the, <sighs> they did make up for it with Ian McGregor because Ian McGregor, and this is not a strike. This isn't the likes. This is not the dislikes. He kind of stole the show, but that's, I mean, but in a good way. Like, yes, I, I've always loved Ian McGregor. 
uh, sometimes he's been in movies that I didn't care as much for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I liked him and I liked his role. And the same here. He was he was great here. Not not yes. Stanley Tucci great, but he was great. Ewan McGregor. Uh, I mean, sorry, you got me saying it that way. I, I think it's pronounced Ewan. Anyway, but uh, McGregor. And anyway. Uh, I'm he, pretty sure you're wrong, but go ahead. Okay. Well, maybe it's just what we call him down here in Georgia. So, um, Ewan, you know, I'll call him that. Southern. Sounds Southern. No, it doesn't. What does it sound like? Maybe it's Southern, you know, Southern, Southern Scottish. I don't know. Anyway, this guy, he plays the one of the king's uh, troops, and he's like the head of the guard or whatever. And what was pretty clever about him, un, uh, uncharacteristic of movies set in medieval times, was that here he is the king's greatest supporter and wants to do every, everything to the letter of the law. But unlike, say, Javert from um, Les Ram, which I know is a completely different era, people, and I know I'm not calling it a medieval story. I'm just saying that they both play a similar key role and that they both represent the law and the state, and they're supposed to be true to the state. And uh, keeping to the letter of the law. And what was pretty clever about McGregor's character, what, what was the name of his character anyway? I, I keep on saying his character, his character, you and I'm, I'm looking yeah. it up. I, I don't Thank remember you. right off the top of my we, head. We need, people need to know. So the thing Elmont, is about this of course, guy. Elmont. Elmont. The thing about Elmont was that he was sympathetic to the spirit of the law ahead of the letter of the law, yet he was yes. concerned with both. And that was a very dynamic portrayal of a troop, of a captain of the guard or whatever he was. And I very much appreciated that, that he cared about his men. He also cared about the, the people of the city and even the farmers. And he might be skeptical about them at first when they were in compromising situations, which would call into question their integrity. So to do the right thing to serve the king best, he'd look out for the interests of the king. Yes. But in the end, he recognized virtue when he came face to face with it, which seemed to be very refreshing because it just doesn't seem like um, movies portray warriors as being intelligent, well, well-rounded people, right? Not very often, not, not in more recent times. So, yes, they could have very easily had turned him into a very cliche sort of, Jack, you just saved the princess. How dare you, sir? You know. Yeah, no, he they, wasn't They didn't do that at all. At all. Yeah. Yeah. That was even when, right. Even when he wasn't comfortable with things that Jack was doing, he kept acknowledging that Jack had helped them so much he should wait to see if Jack could prove himself again. Yeah. And that was pretty clever. I, th- I appreciated that. Th- that was a w- good character in this movie. Yeah. By the way, he was captain of the guard, captain of the king's guard. That was his really? position. Yes. That's awesome. I, I, I was just a total guess. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, Ian McGregor, and uh, by the by the way, I looked it up, and you were correct. I, I don't know. I had read somewhere that it was not pronounced Ewan. It was pronounced Ewan, you know, like E-W-A-N. Like it's mm, spelled, did you get that from the internet? You got to be I careful I don't remember. It. it was a long time ago. But according to okay. like three different sources I looked up, it's U-N. Mm. So there mm. you go. Uh, so, you McGregor. Ready to move on to the dislikes? Uh, let's see. I'm looking. You've crossed them all out. I'm making sure that I did indeed <laughs> t- touched on them all. Oh, I didn't mm-hmm. mention that uh, one of the things I liked about this film, y- you know, a lot of the negative reviews that I've seen have been talking about how it's all like, it's all CGI and all action I don't I don't get that because it's not it takes its time to tell a story. It's not all action. Well, uh, let's well you know, you know TJ, there's really not much to the story of Jack and the Beanstalk and perhaps their criticism is that you could have told the same story with less uh running time. 
because the movie is what almost two hours long and yet it seems like a, there are a lot of additional component parts uh, in this film now the, like for instance the very long battle i mean the battle is kind of lengthy at the end and just leading up to the battle is a series of events that are unfolding in what appears to be real time where um, Jack and Elmont are resolving things up in the Giants' world, and then the Giants pursue them, and the King's men are fleeing the scene. So it's a very lengthy, long-winded part. And yes, you're, I disagree with them as well. That There isn't a heavy dose of action, but it does to me seem like the same story might have been told with fewer minutes. Okay, well, it was only 114 minutes. It was under two hours. I was happy with the length because so many films are over two hours these days and they shouldn't be. But mm-hmm. this film was only 114 minutes, and that's, that's with the credits. So I, I didn't have a problem with that at all. Hey, I did want to note before we launch into the dislikes, uh, one interesting thing about this film is that it was actually written, uh, you know, Brian Singer had a lot of input, but it was written by Chris McQuarrie, who wrote, wrote and directed Jack Reacher. Uh, so he's kind of an upcoming name, I think. Uh, he was also heavily involved with Mission Impossible. He's writing Mission Impossible 5, I believe, and, and that sort of thing. So uh, hmm. Chris McQuarrie was the writer. Uh, and oh, also, John Ottman did both the music and the editing of this film, as he did with Brian Singer's uh, Superman Returns. Huh. Did you notice anything about the soundtrack that, you know, was especially pleasant? I forgot it. It, it seemed to suit the film, no, but it, it doesn't it, seem it to be great the on the film, but it wasn't like, it wasn't a notable soundtrack. Not yeah. not like, uh, you know, uh, there was a couple of soundtracks last year that I came away going, whoa, those were really notable. One of them was uh, uh, Snow White in The Huntsman. Uh, the Avengers was in there. Um, obviously, uh, Les Mis. <laughs> um, what was, let's see, there was one other film I'm forgetting now, but it was a notable soundtrack last year. I don't remember which one it was, though. But this was not mm. that. Yeah. Hmm. I, and, and I felt the same way about John Ottman's other installment with uh, uh, Superman Returns. As much as I liked the film, I didn't feel like the music was notable other than that he used for the opening title sequence the Superman music. But then it, then the music sort of faded off into the distance, and I didn't pay much attention to it. Huh. So I, I feel like maybe that's a characteristic of John Ottman is he doesn't write super great music. And, and I think mostly he's an editor, and he's become into music. So it's, it's a little weird. I've never heard of an editor slash composer. Huh. It's a little strange. So there you go. Well, and you know, too, what's something that is a trend with soundtracks these days is that it's far more about in- invoking the spirit of the film rather than uh, being a thematic one. So it, it seemed like it was uh, popular for a duration of time as long as composers were around that were familiar with a the era of musicals, that they were more concerned with making very thematic soundtracks. And since there's a great number of newer composers that are less concerned with anything that uh, from their childhood that pertained to um, musical plays and musical films, that they're far more interested in just trying to support the story. Let's just do what the story necessitates. Let's just back it up with its emotional spirit and play down thematic uh, a thematic role with soundtracks. And usually, I think that that's a promising thing that soundtracks more often than not get in the way when they try to be thematic and they're overly ambitious yeah but at no, the same time yeah i mean like it's the downfall of well most action films not the only downfall but one of the many downfalls of many action films for several decades where they just didn't need dramatic over the top larger than life themes but yet they had them anyway and they should have just had a very compelling you know uh 
subtle soundtrack more about the emotional spirit of the thing yeah one one of the worst examples of that in in recent memory is um aragon did you watch aragon no it was don't watch it it was terrible film and what made it even more terrible like i feel like it would have been more tolerable if not for the music because i i think they were trying to compensate for the poor story by really building up the music and swelling it this you know this really cinematic music (laughs) at points of the film where you're like why am I hearing this big bombastic music when all that's happening is this dragon is soaring overhead and that's it. Like nothing else is going on in this film. I don't understand why, why do we have music trying to make me feel a way about the film that doesn't match what I'm seeing? Yeah. So yeah, that, uh, Aragon, if don't, don't bother seeing it, it's a terrible film, but that's, that's the most, uh, pertinent example in recent memory of what you're saying. Right. Oh, I remember what the other film was that I had a notable soundtrack. Of course, (laughs) the Hobbit. No. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, shall we talk about uh, a little more focused uh, since we've already mentioned it some, but let's talk more about our dislikes. Yes. And these are, this is mostly you. I have a few, though. Uh, one of them was that uh, the uncle, Jack's uncle, was not very well developed. What, we, we skipped because we started out with Jack as a young boy. And then we skip ahead. He's like 18 or 19 or 20 or something, right? I don't know if we know his exact age. And all of a sudden, he's no longer living with his father. He's living with his uncle. Uh, uncle. Apparently, his father has died. And how did they get to that point? And why was his uncle so bitter? And why did he not like Jack? And what was going? I didn't understand. And, and, and then he's gone. And it's like it wasn't pertinent to the story hardly at all. Why even include it? Well, can I tie something into that dislike? It's one of my larger disappointments, and uh, it's uh, that your yours is a great example of my larger disappointment that I saw throughout. And that was that there was way too much that was led by circumstances. Um, you know, in a good story, your good guy wants something in life and then life happens to them. And then they learn through that process, what they want. That's different in life on the other side of the climax or at just before the climax. And then along the way, the supporting characters ought to also experience um, their their wants and dislikes and likes changing throughout the story as well. Uh, but that doesn't really happen in Jack the Giant Slayer. Uh, Jack the Giant Slayer. Yeah, no, he is the Slayer. So in this, it seems like Jack came across as a boy where we see like a prologue unfold to be a very charming little precocious boy that was uh, larger than life and wanted to believe in giants. And then when he's a young man, he's just living his life as a farm boy. He ain't going nowhere. He doesn't have, he doesn't have any particular motivation. And if anything, I appreciate this, this film uh, characterizes the people in this culture to be mostly depressed. And they're just, you know, down and out. And so I can understand that they, they don't have hopes and dreams anymore and that they're not aspiring to something and they don't have meaning in life. But it seems like most everything throughout the film was dictated by the circumstances so that um, what people did was like the only thing that, you know, that any, well, it's kind of like the fulfillment of any given scene was dictated like this. The screenwriter says Jack is now in a situation where the giant will most assuredly do X what should Jack do? Well, what would the audience like Jack to do? Well, audience would like Jack to kill giant. 
okay, well, then I, that's what Jack will do. Well, does Jack do it because that's the sort of thing that Jack would do? Or does Jack do it because that's just the thing that the audience wants him to do? And and that's then that unfolds throughout the entire film. Mm. That it seemed like every character just unfolded events to, to give you story that they wouldn't have done to be true to themselves, but only to be, you know, fulfilling a part. That, that that was one of my larger disappointments with See, the way the story is characterized. I don't agree with you on this point, and and here's why. Uh, I don't I don't mind the type of story you're saying, but I don't mind this type of story either, where the uh, the the things happen by circumstance that are, that the the uh, the hero is not completely in control of. And I'm going to use a quote um, that I love a lot in order to illustrate my point. Uh, Frodo says to Gandalf, "I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened." And Gandalf says, "So do all who live to see such times, but it is not for them to decide. All we have to de- all we have to decide is what to do with the time that ha- that is given to us." And and so my point is, I don't mind that there are circumstances that they're not controlling. It's how they respond to those circumstances, and and that's why I like Jack and the Giant Slayer. Mm. So okay. I don't agree with your point. That that all that's right. all I'm saying. All right. No, now you had a. You go ahead and complete your dislikes. Tell me some more. Okay, so Uncle was not well developed. Dislike number one. Dislike number two. Stanley Tucci's character. I've already alluded to this. He was killed off prematurely, in my opinion. He uh, was not well used as Stanley Tucci as Roderick. And I completely uh, and, agree. And he he was kind of like the foil to to get the plot started with the crown. Uh, that that uh, which I'll get to in a second. That controlled the giants. They demonstrated but, that he was a very intelligent bad guy. He had thought through an elaborate plan, and everything right. had fallen into place. And but, then, but then he's just summarily killed. And now, now what happens is the giants are are the the big bad guys instead of him. And I would rather have him been the focus of the being the bad guy. Like I would have been much happier with him being the bad what, guy throughout the film. Well, well, wouldn't it have been clever if somehow there was a twist where uh during the events unfolding in the battle scene with the giants at the, in the city that somehow uh Roderick shows up again like he didn't really die, so somehow he had managed to get back to the in the inner city and he was trying to steal the crown from Jack once more to take control of the giants once more. That would have been a really cool confrontation. To somehow explain a way that uh, he had, you know, found a way to narrowly skip death earlier in the film. And somehow, that, that yeah, would have been impressive. I would have liked that as a twist. Yeah, I, at least I, I felt bring like, him back for the finale. Yeah, so Stanley Tucci completely underused and a little bit of an unsatisfying plot line. But you uh, know what? And it was this great opportunity because Stanley Tucci, I've seen him in so many other roles, and usually he plays an underdog or an awesome support to the good guy. And here he got to be a fully-fledged villain. But then, yeah, he's just, you know, unsummarily... What, what happened to him? Did he get squashed, or was he stabbed and then squashed, or was he just stabbed? Yeah. And this, this brings me to my final dislike, uh, which is that the power of the crown is somewhat diluted by the fact that the giants let Roderick get killed while he's wearing it, commanding them to help him. Now, the idea here, for those who may not have seen this film yet, uh, you know, first of all, spoiler alert, right? But obviously you should know that if you're listening to this podcast. So um, the, the crown, like, somehow allows the wearer to control the giants. The giants have to do whatever it is that the wearer of the crown says. Uh, and, oh, I did have one other dislike I forgot to put on here. I'll get to that in a second. Um, but, uh, so 
the whole crown thing is a little bit dumb to me. Like, seriously, you couldn't have come up with something better than that? I, I, it's dumb. Uh, which, which also kind of what remembered what I remembered there. So I can't remember if his name is Foe or Fom or Fee. Uh, but one of the well, other there was, there was a, uh, to clarify, there was a, st- there was a giant that was, name was Foe and there was another giant whose name was Fum. And I, I never heard if there was a Fee or a Fi. Oh yeah, there was. Um, okay. So one so of, one of, but one of those giants of was not very happy with the leadership of the two headed giant played by Mil Nye. Are you ready, my brothers? Um, <laughs> um anyway uh so he wasn't very happy with his leadership and he he would he would glance like he, even when the guy was wearing the crown like he was ready to rebel at any moment and and then you know but the same thing once once uh roderick had the crown the same thing was true of uh of the of the big giant played by bill nye so uh, the, the role of the crown was a little bit unclear like and, and then they let him die like they did not follow his commands even though he was wearing the crown but then it worked later in the film like the whole crown thing was a little bit frustrating and annoying and i didn't understand hmm. well at least ways it almost had a very effective payoff at the end of the film right almost yes <laughs> at least ways uh, at the end they almost almost uh gave a positive excuse for the the crown and gave it a good payoff <laughs> right well oh, oh, let's okay. not give that one away so so the annoyance though i i didn't fully flush it out but my final annoyance with the the giant that was somewhat antagonistic of the leader giant i don't remember his name i'm i'm looking right now but um ah oh, let's see bill nye bill nye where are you um Anyway, so so the leader played by Bill Nye, and there was some antagonism between these two giants that never like like why did we care? We never found it, never did any, never added to the story their antagonism against one another. It never mm. had any bearing or effect on the story. Why why even include it? Mm. So, um, okay, interesting. Well, I guess now is the time for a few of my criticism. Yeah, because I'm uh, out. That's all I had. They were minor. Mm. Okay. My again, I guess my most of my dislikes have to do more with the uh, the big General picture. Fallon. By the way, was his name? Just found it. General Fallon was the name of the head, head giant. Continue. Sorry. Oh, okay. That's actually a pretty good name. Yeah. Surprised it didn't stick. Okay. Um. But okay. We'll see. The most of my dislikes have to do with the big picture, right? I'm thinking about the underlying story, the effort that they put forth to craft the screenplay. I'm thinking about. What it, what material the actors had to use, and it seems like it was just premature. This film was made of it didn't have enough pre production and it had too much post production. And what this means is that the screenplay should have been written with better dialogue, that at least ways inspired better acting, and in in particular in the roles for Jack and Isabel. Um, for instance. The, there, there's this fairly decent prologue at the beginning of the movie that introduces the story as the fairy tale to the children in this world. Um, the dad of Jack and the mother of Princess Isabel are telling their children as a bedtime story, a story of old pertaining to the giants attacking their land. And the kids are wowed and just in awe by the bravery of the king's men, this uh, King Eric, I think it was, that's told about in the story, and how he fashioned the crown. And it's all very elaborate, but it's interesting prologue. It, it does it justice. And then it 
completes the bedtime story moment with these kids where they're just obsessed with this bedtime story. Their parents leave the rooms and the lights are supposed to turn off. And then we jump forward 10 years later or something. And then their parents have nothing to do with the rest of the story. Jack and Isabel have, you know, for the most part grown accustomed to the very notion that there might be giants in the world that they've never seen. And therefore they don't seem to care about them. Jack has moved on and he is unwowed by anything in the world. His life is boring and drab. And so he just lives one day at a time. He is this farm boy that's unappreciated, but ho hum, whatever. It's his lot in life. And then the princess on the uh, stark contrast, she is super uh, unappreciated, uh, just ungrateful for what it is that she has. And she wants to get out and experience the world. And shoot, if that isn't a cliche, I don't know what one is. People, come on. And then the princess happenstantially winds up with Jack in a series of unfortunate events. And so they kind of become fast friends, but it's only in passing. And they both act as though they could get, you know, they could care less even about their own personal relationship until it becomes important that the two of them need each other to survive a number of events that are very unfortunate pertaining to giants and to the beanstalk. And which, oh, shoot, that actually brings up one of my other likes. I'll have to get to that in a minute. Okay, but the thing was is that, no, I, I I get it up in my head. It's there. Okay. So the thing is, Jack and Isabel then uh, just, again, circumstantially have to do certain things that seem appropriate given their situations. And then come the end of the story, because they've had these elaborate life experiences where they save their lives each other so many times, uh, they, well, they got to get married because they love each other by now because, well, look at what they've gone through in the last 24 hours. Why, you know? why do you have a problem with this? I have a problem with it because it doesn't seem fleshed out. It's solely based on cliches. And the the king right. goes to great lengths to just uh, to change the laws so that the, his daughter can marry this peasant simply because, well, they are two crazy kids in love because these two crazy kids fought giants together. They're going to be in love. You just you, know it. You know what you know what, saying, people, you know what I'm I follow saying, Joe? What? I hear you saying blah, blah, blah. But no, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I <don't. laughs> uh, no, I, I understand that. It, and this is, it's something that's going to bother me that won't bother everybody. But it just er, it bothered me that it seems like the some of the most crucial details pertaining to some of the most crucial characters are mostly cliches. And I blame the screenwriters, I blame the pre-production department that they didn't infuse it with enough to make this story feel very complete. Everything about the story that feels complete belongs to the post-production. Okay, so then uh, acting as a whole was stifled because of the, the, the lame things they had to work with from the screenplay. Do not agree, just for the record. You, you go on. I just want to register my disagreement. Yes, and now let me clarify this. I think that uh, the the performances of the giants, though they seem very oppressive physically as CG uh, characters, that their voice talents were not able to really flesh them out very authentically. They came across as Nonsense. being. They became across as being, well, just sort of like melodramatic or super dramatic, just like over the top and cartoonistic in how they portray themselves. 
Um, you know, like, uh, you know, it's the difference between the Joker of the Batman animated TV series, which has been very renowned and very successful, where Mark Hamill does the voice of the Joker. And he has like, that was Mark Hamill? Awesome- no yeah, way. That's Mark Hamill. Okay. Yeah, fabulous comical laugh, just so sadistic it seems, and yet you're fascinated with his role, and he seems to make every episode what it is. But it works in the context of the cartoon. It works in the context of being an artificial uh, representation of a real life, you know, foe. You know, not that he, you know, the Joker was a real person, but you get my point. And then that's how it feels with these giants. That the voice talents were trying to characterize larger-than-life beings that they could not appreciate would be in a live-action movie and not represented as cartoon characters like that of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Mm. So the human-life characters seem like they excel, except for when they happen to be the king. And the king is super important because all the laws of the land that dictate a lot about their culture fall upon him. And then half of, you know, mo- most everything that was crucial to his plot points was well executed. But the king played by Ian McShane, he just, you know what? It, it just didn't seem like he was in it. It was like he was distracted or something. And so everything he did was so passive. Um, everything. Uh, the I don't even want to go there. I don't want to waste my time thinking about him. Um, so so that is what I'm getting to, people. Um, just that that's the thing that kind of seemed to dampen this story for me. And that's that. I mean, I don't know what else to say. From uh, scene to scene, it's entertaining. It's not, it doesn't compromise its entertainment value, but it doesn't seem to make it superly well told. It's like some of the actors didn't believe in the story or its potential. So they didn't take it seriously. Um, so let's back up here. Let's flash back. The one other good thing I wanted to note, TJ was, you know, I want to support one of our positives that we gave this film. Okay. And that was that the visual effects were just absolutely effective. Oh and, yes. We should have and, talked about that. Right, and and the reason I bring this up is because most everything about the beanstalk was super impressive. The Agreed. beanstalk uh, seems to almost have a personality at times, but it's not. It's very subtle, and so it's it's not carried away. And then two, they have some stunning cinematic, um, larger than life shots where you get to appreciate just how high up they are on the beanstalk and away from the ground. And it can trigger some vertigo. I'm telling you. Yeah. Just, definitely. I, yeah. I was, I was kind of surprised. I was like, shoot, man, <laughs> if I were those people up on the beanstalk, uh, I would not be one of those people up on the beanstalk. <laughs> yeah, I, frankly, as far as visual effects go, I don't know what people are complaining about. The CGI is one of the things most people are complaining about. And I thought it was stunning. Like one of the best films yet in terms of CGI. It was, it was not, it, you know, the story isn't the quality of, say, Lord of the Rings, but the special effects were equal to them. Yes, agreed. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Hmm. Uh, well, I don't agree with most of your dislikes, uh, except for the ones that I agree with. So, <laughs> no, so I'm glad that here. there's so much. Uh, I'm, so, I'm glad there's a lot of things we agree on. <laughs> well, thanks, TJ. <laughs> I think. All right. So uh, the bottom line here, Joe, do you think people should see this film? Um, dramatic pause. Let me get some water. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, well, I think it's worth watching if you care anything about the source material. I think if you... What, what do you mean by that? 
What I mean is if you've ever taken an interest with Jack and the Beanstalk and you want to see it done faithfully and, uh, you know, without too many elaborate, uh, you know, transitions to make it, you know, very modern, then go see this film. If you don't care for fantasies, you feel like they've been overused or, you know, you just don't, you know, care about seeing lots and lots of villains that are CG giants, you know, then, you know, you, you don't have to see this film. You should, I, okay. you know, well, at I least think, watch it on, you know, at home when it comes out. Maybe I, just skip the theater. I think just the opposite. I think that if you don't like Jack and the Beanstalk, you don't care for the source material, then definitely see this one because this is a far better film than the source material. It surpasses the source material by far. Uh, I loved it. I think you should see it. I think it's worth seeing. Go see it. I give it uh, four out of five stars. Mm. Did you read my article today? I did. It okay, hasn't okay, been posted cool. yet, but arch. Well, just but mm, coming okay. soon to but a, yes, a website. Yes, I, I, I read your I you. read your article, and based on that, that is pretty much the way I rate movies. And based on that, I give this four of five stars. Okay, I will well, be it, seeing yeah. this film again. Good, good. You, you're going to buy it too, then, right? Well, okay. It depends on how my finances are doing. If I, if money is is always available and readily available, and I've got plenty <laughs> of work, then yes. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, okay. Uh, do Do you think you'll recommend this to like most people? Then you'll just you just will. Yeah. I mean, four is pretty pretty good. It's You're hard, saying it's, it's it's hard for me not to because I liked hmm. it so much. Okay. Yeah. But you'll definitely in, in, recommend it to all your friends. Sure, I recommend okay. it to you, Joe. You're, you're, okay. you're the one friend I can think of. <laughs> mm, okay, well, TG, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just going to reluctantly say, I don't know. I don't know if I should be recommending it to you or not. You you told me earlier in the week, three and a half stars. What's what's with this rating you're giving it now? I, I've just been mulling over it a lot. You know, already I'm beginning to forget this film. It, it, you know, it was not <sighs> bad. It's not a bad movie. It's it's better than it is bad, but it's just not great. So Sounds I'm giving like a three it three and a half stars, stars on me, but you're giving it three. <sighs> no. Yeah, I'm giving okay. it a, th- but, it's just okay. But it wasn't as bad as you thought it was going to be. You told me last week. That's that true. You're not looking forward to this film. You're yes. like, oh, I guess if I have to see it, I'll go through the pain just for you, TJ. Yes. Oh, right. drag myself to the theater. Yes, you won the bet. Okay. All right. Okay, I, I'll get I just have to, the, to be justified here. <laughs> uh, I'll get your money soon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, IMDb <sighs> gives it a 6.6 out of 10. And Rotten Tomatoes low. critics. I'm sorry? It's low. What is wrong with people? <laughs> hey, you need to get on IMDb there, TJ. You need to tell them what for. You need to start rating this. Nah, thing I don't with care them. About, I whatever. All right. <laughs> and the Rotten Tomatoes critics are giving you a 52. And audiences a 65. Yeah, I don't get it, but, you know, whatever. All right, uh, Joe, there's a comment here in the uh, show outline on Google Docs that you have not responded to yet. Do you think mm. we can do two films next week, or do you want to stick to one? What is the two films, TJ? Emperor and Oz the Great and Powerful are both coming out this week. This Emperor? Weekend. What is what is Emperor? Oh, come on. You saw the trailer. Tommy Lee Jones, uh, the, uh, something Fox, the guy. Oh, uh, yeah. Lost. He's about uh, that general guy. Yes, yes. Mm. General MacArthur. <laughs> I would love to do. I'd love to do both of them, but we'll have to talk about that some more. Okay. I, I I don't want to give anything so, away. Folks, plan plan for one or one of those two or both: Emperor or Oz the Great and Powerful. I'm looking forward to both of these films, Joe. I expect you are looking forward to Emperor more than Oz the Great and Powerful. Is that correct? 
Yeah. And hey, if you want to, please leave us a comment on this post of this episode. Let us know what you think. And if you're in the chat room, please let us know there, too. Yes. Whether you'd rather see the film starring Tommy Lee Jones called Emperor or uh, James Franco's uh, Sam Raimi's Oz the Great and Powerful. Just go ahead and let us know. If yeah, you want both, us and tell I've, us I've been, that, too. I've been meaning to mention this before as well. Um, all of our episodes uh, are enabled for comments. We we don't get a lot of negative comments, so we've never had any problems with that. So we – you know, some some sites – and I've been of this opinion back and forth. Some sites don't enable comments. We have comments enabled on our site. And every single episode, you can comment under the show notes. If you go to moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 34, you will find a comments form there. Powered by Discuss, and you can let us know which of these two films you would like to see. We would love to hear from you. Uh, all right, that's that's about it for this show. Joe, where may people find your dwelling place on this internet? Where may okay. they climb the beanstalk and meet you? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not there. You can go there if you want, but you will not find me. You might find TJ. <laughs> His head's in the clouds, but... Oh, gee, um. thanks. I was just trying to be clever, and you're like turning it on my head. Come on, man. Work with me uh. here. I I love TJ anyway. You're you're good egg. You're you're uh, but you're well, not that okay, one that fell Joe, off the king's Just move wall. on before you you fall deeper into this <laughs> hole you're digging yourself. Yeah. So my website is jivingjackalope.com. You can catch me at josephdarnell.com. It'll take you there, and uh, joedarnell.com for the record. Um, just in case you get all tangled up and confused and you type in the wrong keys on the keyboard. And then I'm also available on Twitter. I love interaction there. I'm at Joseph Darnell, and you can find me on Facebook. All right, and you can find me on Twitter at TJ Draper Pro. You can, of course, keep up with the things that I post and do every day at moviebyte.com, M-O-V-I-E-B-Y-T-E.com. Uh, show notes for this episode are found at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 34. Uh, that's it for us this week. Be sure to tune in next week for a discussion of one of the two films or both of the films. Not sure yet which. See you next week. Good night.